0: Welcome to ASD Engage, a podcast for families of children who are currently waiting for an autism spectrum disorder or ASD assessment. I'm Dr. Heidi Kiefer, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I'm
1: Maureen Mosley, a psychometrist. And I'm Sean Brumby, also a psychometrist. We work on teams that assess children for ASD at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Each episode, we will present a topic that reflects concerns brought forward by families we work with. You'll hear information regarding the assessment process and insights and information from a variety of specialists. And more importantly, we'll talk directly to families who share some of their personal stories with us in an effort to help guide you through the assessment process.
0: When a child is diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, Parents and families may subsequently be introduced to a variety of intervention services available. When challenging behaviours exist and are a priority for intervention, behaviour therapy may be an option. But what exactly is behaviour therapy and who is qualified to do it? To help us understand these topics and be better prepared to encounter the myriad of terms often connected to this field, we're speaking in this episode to Justine Vigelman, a board-certified behavior analyst or behavior consultant from Holland Bloorview. So um, first of all, could you start off by telling us a a bit about some of the different programs that you're involved in at Holland Bloorview and the client populations with which you work?
2: Sure. So my, I'm predominantly responsible for being in the psychopharmacology clinic. Um, so this is a clinic where kids are coming in who have tried medications to treat some challenging or interfering behavior with a community physician. And it either didn't work or the family wanted to see if something could be optimized. So they come into this clinic where there's physicians, pharmacists, nurses, and myself as the behavior consultant. And really what the team is looking to do in this clinic is to get a nice uh, background and then to come up with a comprehensive plan for both medical interventions so what medicines might be able to help, but then my role is really determining what other supports um, and services might be able to help that are non-medicine-based, so looking at behavior therapy, looking at other parent training or workshops, and, and a myriad of other services, um, for families, social work, OT, SLP, all of those services. Mm-hmm. That's my main role. I'm also involved in um, a training for physicians in the community called Echo Autism, um, and that involves um, working with a bunch of different experts in the field, so developmental pediatricians, psychologists, nurses, occupational therapists, autism advocates, um, parents, um, and myself, and that's really to train um, other pediatricians and uh, general practitioners about autism, um, which I really enjoy. And then I also work with Dr. Sharon Smile on some of her feeding research here. Okay,
0: you are very busy. I am, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you work with many children with um, autism spectrum disorder. What age range do you typically see?
2: So right now in my role in Holland Bloorview, I would say that the age range that I see in the psychopharmacology clinic is usually between about eight to 17, so generally some older kids. Um, in the feeding clinic with Dr. Small that I work at, they're, they're very young kids, so they're, they're two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the past, though, I worked kind of anywhere between 16 months and eight, 18 years.
1: Oh, it's a big range. It's mm-hmm. a huge range, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you first get interested in working with children with ASD?
2: Um, I was an undergraduate, and one of the courses I was taking was developmental psych, And one of the um, teaching assistants had a son with autism, and she was looking for somebody who could help do respite um, when her and her husband would actually go away on vacation for a week. And she kind of got me by saying it would look great on your resume. (laughs) Um, I knew nothing about autism, nothing about behavior therapy, um, but she got me there, obviously thinking about needing a job when I was done my undergrad. Um, And then she was actually a behavior consultant, so she... Um, was one of my first mentors in the field, and then I worked under her for a period of time, and then the rest is history. I I fell in love, and that was that.
1: So what exactly is a behavior consultant or behavior therapist? Could you explain a bit more about what that is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's the calling yourself a behavior analyst can be really confusing because there's not title protection. So in Ontario, anybody can call themselves a behavior therapist or behavior analyst or behavior consultant, um, but really, when we say any of those terms, we're talking about somebody who is an expert in the field of applied behavior analysis, um, and then who uses applied behavior analysis um, to treat children, to, to teach new skills, and, and treat interfering behaviors. Okay.
0: So you kind of touched on this in the in the first part of that answer, so and in, in your intro, we were clear in describing you as a board-certified analyst in order to highlight those credentials that you've obtained so yeah. what kind of training is it that you have, and why is that important? Well, I'll,
2: I'll start with why it's important. Um, and it's important to kind of protect the clients and families that we work with so they know that somebody has a certification, meaning that they have experience and education behind them. Um, and it also protects me as the, as the practitioner, knowing that um, when I say that I'm a behavior analyst, that that means something to my, to my clients. Um, and then I have um, an area to work in where I'm supported um, through my board. So a, a board certified behavior analyst is somebody who has a master's level of education in applied behavior analysis specifically or a related field like psychology with specific applied behavior analysis training. Mm-hmm. And then who has completed a practicum of 1500 hours um, that was supervised and then writes an exam. And then I'm held, withheld to the board, so I have, I'm responsible for continuing education um, and making sure that my certification is up to date. There's also, when you're looking at board-certified behavior analysts, there's a doctorate level board-certified behavior analyst, which is the same, but they have a PhD. Mm-hmm. There's also a board-certified assistant behavior analyst, which is similar, but a, a little less education, so no master's degree, just an undergraduate degree and now there's registered behavior technicians who have a high school level of education at least um, but they've re- received explicit training on applied behavior analysis um, and so depending on which practitioner you're dealing with they may require more or less supervision from a BCBA or BCBAD
0: okay wow i had no idea of all these different levels yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: it gets and this is why it's mm-hmm. so confusing and there's so many acronyms um, it's hard to tell, but those credentials kind of all mean something and that they have explicit training on applied behavior analysis. Right.
0: And I like how you highlight it. it's like It's important for the clients, but it's also important for you as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Justine, in general, why would uh, a child and family become involved in behavior therapy? And does a child need to have a diagnosis in order w- to work with a behavior consultant? So I'll answer
2: your fr- your Last question first. You do not need to have a diagnosis to be involved with a behavior consultant um, at all. In fact, applied behavior analysis is is not an autism-only treatment. It's just Mm -hmm. um, we found it was really effective for autism, and that's kind of where the funding has gone in the province, and so that's where you see most of us working. Um, But really, we just teach any new behaviors or new skills that any person wants to know or wants to learn, sorry. And we also work on kind of helping reduce behaviors that might be interfering with somebody's life. Um, mm-hmm. So parents would become involved in applied behavior analysis for a variety of reasons. In the toddler phase, it might be one, your toilet training. If, you don't, if you're not sure where to start with toilet training, or if you're having some challenges with toilet training, you may become involved. Sleep training is another really big area of support Um, let's say you have a kiddo who doesn't want to sleep in their own bed at night and so they're sleeping with you and you want to get out of that pattern and teach them to sleep in their own bed later in life it can be you know a preteen or a teen that doesn't want to do their homework and they need some help kind of learning to set goals and monitor their time so that they can do homework Um, and then adults sometimes become involved with behavior therapy services too if they want to Um, do something like learn to run a marathon or Mm -hmm. lose weight or um, pick up another skill that they're having difficulty with and they kind of need somebody to help create a plan for them.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a lot broader than I think people often expect.
2: Yeah and I think people also hear you know applied behavior analysis there must be something that's not going well or a behavior that we have to want to reduce Mm -hmm. that's challenging and that is certainly a lot of what I what i do in my role at home floor view but it really is about teaching new skills so even when we are trying to reduce behaviors that we don't like as much or somebody doesn't like so much um we're really looking at what skills can we teach to do instead and i think that's why it's so become so broad because it really is just about good teaching strategies Mm -hmm. in your everyday life for behaviors that are socially significant to to the child or or to whoever wants
1: to make the change. Okay. And you may have just answered this. (laughs) Um, so when we think of behavior, um, yeah, so behavior is quite broad in what we're Mm -hmm. talking about. Um, some of the common issues, could you explain more, maybe some of the families with ASD, um, some of the common issues that they're dealing with when it comes to behaviors?
2: Yeah. So I think, um, you know, initially many of the, the things certainly earlier in life that come up are, some communication challenges, and certainly um, behavior analysts work closely with the speech language pathologists um, for that kind of thing. There's also sometimes kids with autism are a little bit slower to toilet train or have some other kind of um, challenges related to toilet training that can come up. Um, sometimes um, kids with au- young, young children with autism get kind of stuck in um, some tantrums that are very typical of toddler behavior, um, but then maybe persist a little bit longer than we would expect for them to kind of naturally fall off. Um, so I think those are kind of early in a family's autism journey are the sorts of things that they um, see. And then very quickly, then it works into kind of social skills and looking at um, helping them understand other people's perspectives. Um, that might lead to challenges um, developing social and maintaining social friendships.
1: And so, are you working with families in their homes at times to work on some of these skills? Not right now,
2: my role at Floorview, um, because it's it's my role right now is purely consultative. So I'm really um, helping families access those supports um, and not doing kind of um, programming and intervention with those families directly. But behavior analysis treatment or plans absolutely need to occur in the environment in which they're happening. So if you're doing sleep training, coming into a clinic, you're not you're not going to come into a clinic and talk to a behavior analyst or behavior consultant about the sleep challenges you're having. They're going to go to your home and they're going to help you set up a program that works for you and your family in your home. So um, absolutely. It's going to the home. If there's a lot of challenges in schools, we have behavior analysts working in schools to help with that. Similarly, um, I've had families who were able to get me into daycares in the past. Um, so yeah, I used to go into the home and, and I actually, it's a component that I do miss. Um, cause you really get to know a family quite well when you're in their home. Um, but yes, that's where treatment occurs, where, where the challenge is happening or where the goal, where the behavior We want to see the behavior happen.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you kind of um, touched on this when you were talking about a lot of times the focus is on maybe eliminating behaviors, right? Whereas you Mm -hmm. want to emphasize building skills, right? So there, there can be that tendency to think of behavior with negative connotations, right? And to perhaps focus on trying to eliminate certain actions or activities that a child does. I mean, from your point of view as a behavior consultant, how are you conceptualizing and thinking about a child's behaviors? Like what are the different functions of behavior?
2: Yeah. So first I'll say that my field has a bit of a problem with sounding very cold. We, we, we say things that are, we say behavior, but I'm engaged in a behavior right now. I'm talking to you and that's a behavior. So to me, when, when some, when I say behavior, it's just anything I can see or hear somebody do is, is a behavior. And so We engage in lots of really great behaviors, um, too, but you're right, it kind of has that negative connotation. When we're talking about why behaviors happen, that's when we're looking at a function of behavior. And so we can also think about it as what is the child getting or getting out of by engaging in the behavior. I'm talking to you both right now. You're nodding at me. I can see even though we're wearing masks, you're kind of smiling at times. So I'm, I'm going to continue talking because I'm getting some nice social interaction that's, that's pleasant. We, and so we always want to think about you're getting or getting something out of it. And we can classify all of those things into kind of four broad categories. Mm-hmm. So one is you are getting something that you like that is tangible. Mm-hmm. um so access to more ipad time access to a popsicle that you wanted um access to playing um a favorite game you can get attention so other people that's what i'm getting now looking smiling at me nodding um attention can be tricky because sometimes we i do meet some children that also like negative attention mm-hmm. so even when um if they're yelled at sometimes some kids find that quite funny and like it, um, we can look at what we call escape, which is really just trying to get out of something we don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could think about this like procrastinating, or if I, you know, rip my homework sheet and I'm sent to the principal's office, then maybe I, I got something out of that because I don't have to do the homework that I, that I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And then we have behaviors that This is a very technical behavior analytic term that I almost never use because even many junior behavior therapists don't understand it, and it's automatic reinforcement. Um, So these behaviors we also, you'll hear most often described as sensory. And the idea is is there's something that you are getting out of by engaging in the behavior that doesn't rely on anybody else. So we can presume that either it feels good to do or is calming, um, things that are kind of habitual like um I'm talking with my hands right now, some people tap their feet, um, chewing gum, these are all kind of sensor we can say sensory or automatic behavior because nobody else is involved in what I'm getting out of that behavior.
0: Would that also include like stimming behavior for AST? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So repetitive behaviors and and that's where it gets kind of tricky because um for stimming behaviors they're often not harmful. And so a behavior analyst often would not suggest to change them we wouldn't unless they were harmful um but it's hard because they look they're different they look different than than what kind of the rest of people think right so mm-hmm. most people you know don't think anything is weird about somebody moving their hands or twirling their hair or or tapping their foot um but if i flap my hands in front of my hand, in front of my face and then that looks more odd um but all of those behaviors are, are just the same mm
1: mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and understanding the function of behavior seems so important. Um, so it's kind of like the why, like why is this happening? Like what's yeah. the underlying reason that this behavior is being seen?
2: Yeah, and that's the true—that's the crux of applied behavior analysis because first we have to understand why the behavior is happening, and then we can treat it, right? So in that example where a kiddo is ripping up a homework sheet to, and going to the principal's office, we can see a pattern and say even though maybe the teacher's trying to use the principal's office as a way to get that ripping to stop it might actually actually be accidentally strengthening behavior mm-hmm. and once we understand that we can say okay so what can we do instead to help teach the child to do their homework and how can we respond differently in a way that doesn't accidentally reward that behavior that we don't like and so you're right it's <clears throat> absolutely crucial we understand why it's working to treat it. And I I tell my families, it's kind of like when you go to your doctor's house, your your doctor's house, your doctor's office, if you have an ailment, they don't just give you a medication. They're going to assess why that's happening. And and that's the exact same in behavior analysis.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of, because I was a senior facilitator and then a program coordinator for many years. And um, just the attention piece, sometimes it can be once you understand why a behavior is happening, then you have a better way of understanding how you should react to that. Mm -hmm. And I just remember sometimes having to not attend to things that where a child was really wanting someone's attention and to have to, you know put up a face where it's like I'm gonna (laughs) pretend I didn't see that and I'm gonna try not to react even though it goes against every kind of instinct that you have Um, and that can be really tricky but it's something that's really good to learn once you know that a certain behavior is happening because the child wants your attention or um, they want that reaction.
2: Exactly and so in that moment we can respond with less or no attention and then we need to look at too How do we create a more reasonable and appropriate way for that child to access the attention? Um, And sometimes it's just that you can't have attention all the time. And so sometimes it's learning that skill of tolerating that you don't get attention all the time. And sometimes it's learn, and often it's learning a different way to communicate that you need that attention. Um, But yeah, it is um, tricky, especially um, sometimes kids do things that are very cute, that are very hard not to kind of crack a smile at. Um, and then kids very quickly learn things that are dangerous that you have to attend to. So that
0: attention piece can be it's a very, tricky it, yeah. one to navigate. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's the tricky piece, <laughs> knowing when to intervene and when to ignore.
0: Yes. I could see how the, like, understanding the functions of behavior also might help remove um, or, or change certain parent interpretations of why mm. a behavior might be happening and taking away some of, maybe of the negative connotations they might be having about a behavior
2: yeah absolutely yeah i mean we i something i hear quite a bit is there really is children being described as manipulative that's exactly what i was thinking and (laughs) really like the like especially for young children and and even for some of my teens with autism if they are truly being manipulative and they're understanding the social perspective taking that it requires to truly be manipulative. That kind of makes me a little bit proud that we've taught them that social skills. Um, but no, it's not manipulative. It just works to get something done. Right. If if I came in, um, to my office every day and asked my, the person I sit beside to get me a coffee and if they went every single day, I love coffee. Maybe I would keep asking them to do that. yeah um, right. But then somebody would have to teach me that, It's not polite to always ask for a coffee and those other skills, but yeah, they just, they just work. It's not that somebody has, wants to be manipulative or do things purposely. It just is getting a need met for them.
0: Right. That's a great way of putting it. And, and Justine, you pointed out also uh, to us that many people hear the word behavior, and then there are a lot of terms within uh, your field Mm -hmm. um, that are perceived as kind of cold and without emotions, Do you consider emotions in your work with children and families?
2: Yes, yes, (laughs) Um, yes, absolutely. It is, um, you know, behavior analysis has had it's a it's a new kind of science, um, and we've had some growing pains, and we've had had some, um, you know, past that wasn't so great. Where you know, in the past, we may have said like other researchers may have said, no, we don't need to consider emotions, but we absolutely do. Um, I think no person could say for themselves that their emotion doesn't affect their behavior. Okay. Right. And it is the exact same for all kids and, and kids with autism. They have emotions, too, and that absolutely affects their behavior. And so we can and so we we do need to consider it. Um, sometimes, though, especially. Especially when kids can't tell us how they're feeling. Sometimes then we have to kind of focus on just what can we see and hear. Because I don't want to infer something about what that child is thinking that's incorrect. Mm -hmm. Um, But absolutely we consider emotions. And know that emotions affect all of our behavior. um, Regardless of our age and regardless of whether we have autism or not.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to highlight because even on my end, when I'm doing developmental assessments and I talk to parents and a lot of times there's the, well, I thought ASD, like kids just don't have like the same type of emotions or they're lacking empathy and stuff like that. Um, So I think uh, to clear that up, that emotions still play a really big role in all of this.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, many autistic people that I've met have even more empathy um and then some non-autistic people as well so um yeah those emotions play a role and and it's just about kind of figuring out where and when can we infer about emotion and then where do we kind of have to put our science hat on and, and look back and observe the situation um without the emotion so it's not that you're not considering the emotion but just what can you you know what is the story that I'm seeing in front of me unfold mm-hmm. and then thinking about, okay, are there certain times uh, setting, we call them setting events, or are there certain things that are kind of setting that child up mm-hmm. to have a rougher day, right? If they're kind of in a bad mood, if something um, has happened to them and they're sad, if they're feeling anxious about something, then that can all set them up to have kind of a, a more challenging day. Um, or some things can set them up to have a really great day too, right?
1: Yeah. mm mm-hmm. So when parents are researching and learning about ASD, inevitably they are going to encounter the acronym ABA, Mm -hmm. uh, which stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. Could you explain what ABA is and why it's so much associated with ASD?
2: Yeah, so Applied Behavior Analysis is our scientific approach to understanding behavior and then um, changing behavior, modifying behavior. and. And when I say changing or modifying behavior, I'm talking about learning new skills and reducing skills that are getting in the way of us learn. Or sorry, reducing behaviors that are getting in the way of us learning. So we kind of already talked about looking at the function of behavior and why that was so important. And so that's where that kind of um, behavior analytics, So behavior analysis is really about assessing and looking through, you know, using our science to assess why behavior is happening, and then that applied piece of applied behavior analysis is saying okay so what can we do how can we change the environment so how can we get other people to react differently how can we make um, the setting that the child is in more supportive that they can learn skills um, and decrease any interfering skills and then you know continue with that scientific approach then we set goals and we continue to track progress and take data so we can see you know are the strategies that we're putting into place, are they actually helpful? If we're not actually teaching a new skill, then we need to change our strategy. If an interfering behavior is not getting better, then we we need to change our strategy. Um, And so that's kind of ABA in a nutshell. Applied behavior analysis is is so broad and can work in so many different areas um, and does, but I think that when we kind of saw that it works for ASD, Um, that's where a lot of the funding dollars went and certainly in the province and in other countries around the world, so much funding went into applied behavior analysis for the treatment of autism. And so that's then where more professionals started to work. And so that's why you kind of always hear them together. Um, so ABA is considered an effective treatment for ASD. Um, and when I say treatment, just like helping to learn new skills, but, um, but it also works in many other um, settings with many other types of challenges, even in organizations like big banks, how to get your employees to be more productive, for example, so it can have something um, totally separate from autism mm-hmm. as well. But that's why they're kind of
1: linked. And could you give us an example of how you might break down and tackle a behavior using the ABA, an ABA approach?
2: Yeah, so first, my first question is always around kind of what is the challenging behavior. So what does it look like and sound like? So if a parent says, you know, they're having a meltdown, that could look very different for every child. So what does a meltdown look like for your child? And then I look and ask about, okay, what's happening in the environment whenever you see that behavior? Um, Sometimes I'll ask parents to take some notes about what's happening before. Sometimes I'll observe what's happening before. And I look for patterns, right? So Let's say um, a child's throwing themselves on the floor and then I see a pattern of it's whenever, you know, a screen is turned off. Mm -hmm. Right. So then that lets me know, okay, so the screen's turned off, they're throwing themselves on the floor. And then I look at what happens right after they throw themselves on the floor. So how is, how are the adults, how are other people responding? And that gives me the biggest clue about what the function could be. So if I see that the other adults are responding by maybe offering a bunch of other alternatives that are highly preferred, Mm -hmm. then that can tell me something about the function and I can say, oh, okay. So whenever they, something's removed from them, they throw themselves on the floor and then they're offered other highly preferred items. Okay. So they must be doing this to get access to a tangible item. so once I understand that, and then I can look and say, okay, so first things first, how do we risk, how do we teach that child to ask for other, for items that they want that's not melting down on the floor, right? Because they're, they're communicating, that behavior is communication. So how can we teach them to communicate what they need or want? So we're, so we're looking at that and then we can say, how can we teach the parents Or the adult how to respond to make it less likely to happen again in the future, right? So we might be telling the parents, you know, maybe redirect them to other activities, but not their favorite activities. If the meltdown means that they're getting access to something that's their absolutely favorite, maybe they get their favorite activities when they ask for those items in a more appropriate way, whatever that way might be, if it's sign language or pictures or verbal communication or even pointing, Mm -hmm. right? And then we can also look at, so we're looking at what behavior can we teach for them to do instead? How do we respond? And we can also look at how can we even prevent the behavior? So what if we, instead of just taking away that screen, what if we give them a warning that it's about to be over? What if we give them um, a warning and also offer them those other highly preferred action, uh, activities before the behavior starts? And so we're always looking at three points of strategies to prevent, to replace the behavior with, with a better one, and then to respond to the behavior when it, when it does happen, cause it will, mm-hmm. um, and what we can do instead.
0: That's great advice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times I hear parents when they try something new and then it doesn't work. But yes. I'm always curious about, like, well, how long should you try until you know it really doesn't work? Yeah. So, I mean, it's so it's so tricky because
2: it's so variable. It depends on what it is. It also depends on how long has that interfering behavior, let's say it's an interfering behavior, how long has it happened, yeah. right? If you're trying to, you know, this old... This old thing—you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, you absolutely can, but it might take longer, right? <laughs> yeah. So with children, their learning history or their their behavior is not as long hasn't necessarily happened as long. But if it's been going on for a year, then it's going to take a little longer than if it's a new behavior that you you know that's been happening a week, and you think, oh, we got to nip this in the butt kind of thing. Um, my general rule of thumb is when you have a good behavior strategy that you've developed by looking at the function and thinking about all those points of intervention, I say, please give it two or three weeks of consistent implementation mm-hmm. and collect some data. Even sometimes it's parents just writing on a calendar how things went or you know how they felt things went is even helpful. Um, and you should gradually see it getting better. So if it's a behavior that is interfering, hopefully it's happening less, or if it's a new skill you're teaching, it should be happening more. So it doesn't mean that you've met the goal necessarily at two or three weeks, but you should be making some progress. And if you're, if you're not making progress, you don't have to throw everything out the window, but you can kind of reevaluate and try to change one thing. Right. The one thing I always kind of warn parents about is, and now this is a very cold term and I'll explain what it actually means, is when you do try to Uh, replace an interfering behavior with a different behavior behaviors get worse before they get better and it's called an extinction burst which is a term that makes a lot of scientific sense to me but i hate because it's so cold (laughs) basically all it means is things get worse before they get better and the way that i like to explain it to parents is if i go to my car in the morning and i turn on i try to turn on my car i put the key in the ignition try to turn it on and it doesn't start I don't immediately get in my car and call a cab to take me to work. I'm going to try it again. <laughs> I'm going to try it again. Right? Yeah, so Cabs so, are
0: expensive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right.
2: So now you have an increase in my behavior, right? right. Then maybe I'm going to do something like hit my dashboard out of frustration, right? So now you have a new behavior that is maybe even worse than the repeated trying the car. And then maybe, depending on how I'm feeling, because I'm not very um, car savvy, but maybe I'll open the hood of my car. And so that's a very rare behavior that now we're seeing happen, mm-hmm. right? And so this can all happen as a result of that car no longer meeting my need, right? So if I'm now, so now you have that kid who's melting down but not getting their favorite thing right away, we can see how behaviors we might see them happen more frequently. We might see them change to be worse behaviors and we might see behaviors that we really rarely see come out but eventually if my car doesn't stop doesn't start i'm gonna get in the cab right and okay. so and then you know the next time i go to my car if it doesn't start right away i'm gonna think oh this again so i'm not gonna engage in the same number and intensity of behaviors before i call the cab Right. And eventually I'm just going to learn a new skill of how I'm going to get to work or I'm going to get a different car, which is like a different behavior you can kind of right. think of. So we, we all do it. Um, but behaviors get worse before they get better. And if you're consistent, that that extinction burst, that increase should only last anywhere from a couple of days
0: to, to a week. And then it, and then it should drop off pretty dramatically after that. Yeah, That's a great analogy. I love mm-hmm. that. <laughs> Um, In our pre-interview conversation, you explained something to me that I had long been confused about, and I administer ASD assessments, so I imagine that there's a lot of confusion among parents and families as well. So this is really specific to Ontario, but in in Ontario, we might hear about not only ABA, but IBI, or Intensive Behavioral Intervention, or we used to a lot, Mm -hmm. but what's the difference between them? Right. So,
2: yes, this is very confusing. We, we made navigating all these services very confusing. Um, ABA is our science of understanding behavior and changing it. IBI is a package curriculum designed by the Ontario government. So, intensive behavior intervention, IBI, just means that a child received 20 to 25 hours per week of treatment that was based on ABA. Ah, okay. so we can think about applied behavior analysis being kind of the science, and then under it, there's kind of different types of packages that you can get that are all using that science, but are just packaging it differently. So in IBI, it was a, it was a lot of hours per week, and it was generally w- with one to one therapy. So there was a single therapist that would work with the child at a time, and there, I mean there was a team of therapists, but at one time, working with them, and you had somebody like myself overseeing all the clinical programming. Um, there's there's other sorts of um, packages that are not Ontario-specific under the ABI umbrella, too, that some families might be familiar with, like Early Start Denver model, mm-hmm. Pivotal Response Training. Those all use principles of applied behavior analysis, but they're just kind of like a packaged curriculum mm-hmm. Um kind of kind of thing so yeah ibi is only an ontario term it always blows everybody's mind but it just refers to a lot of one-to-one therapy hours of aba okay, okay. yes
0: The <laughs> a light bulb so. that, that <laughs> lit up when you explained that to me <laughs> um
1: so we've always we, we often hear that early intervention is really important for kids with asd um is there value in behavior therapy for children and youth at older ages and how does it look different in older kids versus younger kids?
2: Yeah, there's absolutely value. Um, the, the really lovely thing about applied behavior analysis, it is, it is designed to be individualized. So any applied behavior analysis program should meet the child where, where their current needs are. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about early intervention, we're looking at how do we catch kids up, right? That's kind of the goal of early intervention. Can we catch them up? Can we teach them the skills they need to learn? Like their same age neurotypical peers, when we're looking at some older kids, um, it changes. One is they um, they they should have more increasing say in what goals are important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, often it looks like more specific goals around their their needs. So whether it's they're having difficulty social with social skills, I've had some. Clients who you know are highly motivated to have friends, who are highly motivated to have romantic relationships, um, and don't understand how to even go about speaking to somebody that they might romantically be interested in. Um, sometimes you know it's more about homework or getting a job later. Um, teenagers are teenagers, regardless of whether you have autism or not. So often it's kind of looking at conflict in the home with parents. Um, and helping them, you know, reach goals so that they can be more independent, just like every teen wants to be independent. Um, and helping their parents kind of let them be more independent. Um, so it just kind of changes based on based on needs. school age kids might have, you know, challenges with staying on task um, in the classroom and they, and they need more help with that.
0: Mm -hmm. this actually reminds me of a show that we've been into uh, love on the spectrum yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. and there's been some behavior kind of uh, consultation around how to shape those behaviors when you're going out on a date for the first time
2: absolutely and especially like we we know that our social um, interactions become ever increasingly complex Mm -hmm. right as we age and so it's always kind of learning those skills I mean many adults haven't figured it out too right Mm -hmm. um there's moments where i think i haven't figured out this this whole marriage thing (laughs) so um so yeah absolutely as those complexities happen and as as kids with autism grow their their needs change and so applied behavior analysis is all about helping teach the new skills that they want that they want to learn and then helping reduce anything that might be getting in the way of the skills that they want to learn
1: And do you find, um, are there any common misconceptions that parents may have when their child is starting with behavior therapy? Yeah, um, (laughs) (laughs)
2: there's, there's, there's a lot. I think when you're, um, when you're starting with behavior therapy, um, I think one of the common misconceptions I had, I think is, is partly because of the way we structured applied behavior analysis in the province, because we had this IBI program Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of parents that I meet now really feel that unless they're kind of bringing their child to a center where they're getting a high number of one-to-one hours they're not getting applied behavior analysis Mm. so it's a lot of teaching about what is behavior analysis how can it help and what role parents can take in helping teach their child those skills because really parents are our biggest allies and we can I can teach parents to kind of not to be a therapist, but to kind of know how to respond to those things. And then that makes their life at home so much better. And the, the children acquire skills faster because they're accessing them and practicing them at home a, a lot. Um, so that's, I think one of the major misconceptions. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, applied behavior analysis seems very cold. So I get a lot of questions around that. Um, or where they've heard, oh, you should just ignore this behavior, right? And we talked about there are moments and times when we need to ignore behavior. But then really helping them understand, well, we have to look at why the behavior is happening um, to know what to do. So think so misconceptions about that. Um, and then, you know, there are some people that feel very strongly that applied behavior analysis is not an appropriate treatment. So explaining to them, you know, what it is. That, that I do, or what a behavior consultant or analyst would do, um, and, and helping them realize that they would be working on their goals that are significant to their, ch- to their child's life and to the child's goals, as soon as the child is able to kind of let us know what some of their goals are and what's important to them. So I think early in the autism journey, it's, more, it's a lot of clarity about what is ABA and, um, and language that we all understand. Um, kind of avoiding all this jargon and and these really cold clinical terms.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's important for parents listening, if they're just starting off on the ASD journey, because it is, it can be very confusing, all the different terms and different types of therapies that use ABA. And, um, but I think you're really helping us understand exactly what you do and the different things that you can work on and different ways that you can work on these skills.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, one of my kind of, Goals as a professional is to really empower parents to ask those questions. Applied behavior analysis is based on this long history of science, but at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. It, it should make good sense to you when somebody's speaking to you about it. So, if you're speaking to a behavior therapist and it's very jargony or you're not quite understanding why they're recommending something or what they're saying, challenge them. Ask them about it, and they should they should be able to tell you in a way that allows you to then go and tell your neighbor what they told you. Right. That's kind of the test. If you can't tell your neighbor or family member or friend what the behavior analyst told you, then maybe that behavior analyst isn't a good fit for you because it should be, it should be, it should make good sense. And if it, if it doesn't ask mm-hmm. and, and don't feel, I think sometimes it's hard, you know, you're early in the autism journey. You're, you're trying to learn about it and you want the help of professionals, but don't be afraid to, to really challenge and ask them those questions because they're there to help you and your family. So. Um, ask away. Mm-hmm.
0: So temper tantrums, aggression, toileting issues, taking flight in dangerous situations, these are all types of situations that can arise at very inopportune times. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I'm thinking of when parents are exhausted at the end of the day or when they're out in public with their child trying to run errands. Yes. Do you find that there are certain traps that parents can fall into when their child is exhibiting challenging behaviors?
2: Yeah. So let's say you've had a very busy day and you're at your kiddo with, at the grocery store and they're like hitting you because they want a chocolate bar. This is like a very simplified example. Um, but you have a goal. You want to just get what you need at the grocery store and you want to get out of there. Um, and so when you buy that, your child, the chocolate bar, you might in that moment realize, no, probably right away. Most parents tell me this. I knew I shouldn't have got them the chocolate bar because they hit me, but I needed it to stop so I could go. (laughs) And it's that's that's fine that that happens sometimes, and I think that it's okay to realize that parent was rewarded. They also had a need met, mm. right? They escaped a situation. They had a need met where then their child was calm, and they could get what they needed to get done, and leave. Right. Right. And so, I think though kids learn very quickly what situations they can kind of test and and um, push push the boundaries a little bit. And so I think that my recommendation would be real life happens in those moments. You got to do what you got to do. If something's unsafe, you just got to make it end. Um, but if there's a pattern that you're seeing, then you have to sit down and think, okay, what's the plan that I'm going to do? This is happening every time we go out. How can I try to prevent the behavior? What's a different skill I can teach them instead. And then ultimately, if the behavior is going to happen, what should I do? And then go out to the grocery store and practice that on a day that you don't have a million other things going on and you're not already tired and overwhelmed um, so that you can start to kind of go through the skill of grocery shopping and aggression doesn't le- does not lead to a chocolate bar. Right. So I think that, you know, these things happen. So I'm a behavior analyst and I do things with my daughter all the time and I th- uh, that I know I shouldn't be doing. Um, but at the end of the day, if those things are becoming a problem, and a pattern, then know that you can always go back and make a plan and kind of fix the problem, right? So you can, you can always change behavior. And if there's a moment where you, where a parent needs to have a need met, they can have their need met and then Mm -hmm. make a plan for, for what to do next time.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting. The, the, the piece around, um, parents are getting rewarded by escaping a certain thing too, because that could definitely interfere with, ability to follow through at times absolutely yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah
1: and justin we wanted to be able to include some practical tips um for parents and families with that in mind we're hoping you could share with us some strategies or way of thinking about some particular situations um so first of all could you tell us about how to reinforce and increase appropriate behaviors versus, versus correcting the problematic ones
2: yeah. So when we talk about reinforce, that just means strengthen the behavior that we want to see. Right. And so really, when we're talking about how we reinforce behaviors, we can think about it. How do we reward a good behavior? Right. That, and by good, something that we want to see happen. So um, we can think about your child's life should get better as a result of doing the behavior that we're trying to teach or that we prefer over a challenging behavior, um, their life needs to get better, right? If their life doesn't get better or stays the same, it's effortful to do kind of a new behavior. um, so we might not see it again, right? So if I come to work and let's say I'm involved in a special project and I'm working all of this extra time, um, and putting, you know, late hours into it. If I got a bonus, Or if I got a thank you note from my boss, that's a nice reward that will make it more likely the next time a special project comes up that I will, you know, put as much effort into it versus if I got nothing or if my boss said something like, well, yeah, you did all that extra work into it, but you know, you also came in late. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to be less likely to do all that extra work Mm -hmm. next time. Um, So I would say when you see your child do something you really like and you'd like to see more of think about how can I make their life better and how you make your child's life better depends on your child. It could be, you know, um, toilet training. My daughter, she was having some, some accidents. And I thought, how can I make it better? She really loves animal crackers. They're a big treat. So when she asks to use the washroom, she gets an animal cracker, right? That works for her. For other kids, it might be, you know, lots of, lots of praise, lots of high fives. Um, for some kids it might be time alone where they get to relax. Um, sometimes it's if they're doing you know a little worksheet that's hard for them you know stopping them halfway in the middle and saying you're doing such a good job do you want to have a break right where you're Mm. allowing them before they um allowing them to leave something that they don't really like so just I think that's my biggest tip make their life better that's a great way of looking at it Mm
1: -hmm. and where do parents start when they're trying to have their child do something that they don't want to do (laughs) I know it's a big question.
2: (laughs) They're trying to have their child do something they don't want to do. Well, um, I would say that the first thing you want to consider is how can you make that task as easy as possible for them, right? So let's say it's cleaning up your toys, right? So maybe a child doesn't want to clean up their toys. They want to keep playing. How can I make that task as easy as possible, Well, maybe I, I can help them clean up. Maybe I can tell them, give them some warning that, you know, we're going to clean up the toys, but then we're going to go do another fun activity or letting them know what's coming next that they can look forward to, um, to make it kind of an easier transition. Um, once we make it a little easier and we help them, or this is called prompting, helping them to complete whatever you've asked them to do. then the important piece is that reward, making their life better. Right, so so make simplify it, help them do it, and then make their life better when they do. Even if they just attempted it but didn't quite get it right, you have to make their life better. Mm -hmm. And as they continue to attempt it, then you can kind of up your ante and what you require to make their life better. Right. So then, maybe initially, if you clean up all of the toys but one, and they only have to put one toy back in the toy box, maybe. You do that a couple times, and then maybe the next time is they have to put a handful of toys in the toy
1: box in order
2: to get, you know, whatever reward you've decided, or their life better, the high five, or whatever it is.
1: So breaking it down into
2: breaking it easier down steps. Yeah, and... and then slowly adjusting your expectation. We call it shaping. So slowly adjusting your expectation until you're kind of getting your child to do the behavior that you want them to do at the goal level that you initially set.
0: Yeah. And and I guess uh, for some kids, too, um, what might support that process is is things like visuals. Visuals, 100%.
2: Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, showing them visuals of of what's expected. So we can use visuals, warnings, timers to let them know, um, helping them to do it, all of those things.
1: Mm. And that also leads well into... A question about how can you support a child transitioning from a preferred activity to a non-preferred activity
2: yes so in the same way so thinking so visuals are great using a first then board um, or a first then next board which shows the preferred activity and then the activity you want them to do but then the next preferred activity they're <laughs> gonna get to do so they can kind of plan their day yeah. And, I mean, if you think about it, I don't want to come to work or have a weekend where somebody only tells me moment to moment what my activity is, right? I want to know, okay, I have to do the dishes, but what am I going to do after that? Mm -hmm. So these are normal things that we expect, and and so we should tell our children, too. And visuals support that. Um, So using a visual, some kids really benefit from having... Um, like a transition item. So if they're leaving a very fun area and they're going to do something else, maybe they can take a little toy or a little fidget item with them to go over to it. Um, You know, looking at how can we reward when they do leave that preferred area to go over to the next task. And in terms of thinking about how can we make it easier when we're trying to teach a good transition that we know is already a challenge, it shouldn't be favorite thing to least favorite thing, right? So it can maybe favorite thing to another kind of preferred thing, and then a favorite thing to kind of a neutral medium preferred, and then a favorite thing to a not so preferred task. So you're kind of making it a bit easier. So they're learning that they're leaving this area to do something else. Their life gets better, even though it's not something that they particularly like. Mm -hmm. So you're reinforcing it and then um, over time it gets, um, sorry, they're leaving the area to do something that they also like, and you're reinforcing it, and then you can gradually kind of make it transitioning to things that they like less, but they'll they'll tolerate it a little more because they've had a nice learning history.
0: Is that something, so like once you've got that kind of, template or that kind of strategy approach in place can then you use that like and be adaptive with like a more novel situation so like yes. i mean it's it's fall and winter and so people are getting flu shots right and needles can be a big issue right and yeah. it's not a very preferred activity by many kids yes
2: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and so using that first then next so we're gonna go in <laughs> have it and then what to, can you look forward to after you do something that's very difficult yes for you right Um, and also sometimes with that sort of thing that doesn't happen super frequently. It's not like it's a daily task for the child. Sometimes I'll, um, write a little social story or family will make a little social story that just outlines. So the child knows exactly what the expectation is, what's going to happen. Um, so it's very clear to them when they go in that they know what to expect at each stage. I've had families say that, if we tell my child what's about to happen, they won't sleep at night, it will it will go disastrous. So you know your child best, and then don't use that strategy. But yeah, once you find a strategy that's helpful, like visuals, you can absolutely apply it to all of those situations. Great.
1: Okay. okay. Um, and how do you know that behavior therapy is rolling out successfully if you're a parent? You should see change. You should see progress.
2: Goals that you set, you should see... Um, progress towards them right and a a behavior therapist will really break goals down you've probably already heard me say many ways how we kind of break down break down goals towards the end big goal but you should see progress on those and so um, if you're working with behavior therapists they will take data or they'll ask you to take some data so we want to see you know behaviors that we're trying to increase so skills we're trying to increase we want to see them happening more often with less support needed to do the behavior. And for interfering behaviors that we want to see happen less, you should see them happening less frequently. Um, and again, it's kind of a gradual process leading to that goal. But within within about two weeks, you should start to see a measurable, two or three weeks, a measurable progress towards that goal. That One of the most important things about behavior analysis is we don't see using strategies that are ineffective Um, we we change them even if it's only changing one thing Mm -hmm. and usually when families find that they're trying something and it's not working the way they thought almost always the first troubleshooting step is evaluating is their life getting better Mm. what's the reward we're using they might really like something but is it actually working to motivate them to do the task is the task that we're asking them to do so difficult that even though they like you know a high five it's it's not enough to get them to to do a new skill that's that's very difficult Mm -hmm. so that's usually like that's my biggest troubleshooting recommendation is to kind of say like what could i use differently as a reward
1: Mm -hmm. so rewards are really important yeah enforcement piece
2: yeah and it doesn't have to be i think one of the myths is that it has to be like skittles or edibles doesn't have to be it can be social praise, activities, fun things, just life gets better.
0: Okay. I think we all like rewards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, would you come, like we
2: all, I think it's safe to say we all feel very passionate about our jobs. I love what I do. Would I come and do it as often as I do if I didn't get paid? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that's, that's something to consider. Um, I probably would still do it a, a little, but there are definitely days when I think, no, I think I can Sleep in, right? Yes,
0: mm-hmm. yes. I was also thinking about it with respect to the first, first then uh, approach to yes. Like, yeah, I'd come into work, but I want to know that I'm going home afterwards too. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. And if you have a really difficult day, right? Like for me, maybe it's like I'm going to order from my favorite restaurant mm-hmm. as like a little treat for a very challenging day that I got through. Right. Yeah. So we all we all incentivize ourselves. Um, And so we should expect to do the same for kids. They need incentives to to do things that are hard for them,
0: too. Yeah. Um, At the top of this interview, you alluded to this, and then uh, we were also talking about this topic um, prior to our recording today. But Justine, you shared that one of the biggest challenges in your field is that there's no real regulations around who can call themselves uh, mm-hmm. a behavior consultant. So unlike other regulated professionals who may be involved with the assessment and intervention of children and youth with ASD, and a lot of them that we've talked to in the podcast, so pediatricians, psychologists, social workers, occupational therapists, there are no established stand- standards for like, who can call themselves a behavior consultant. Mm-hmm. So what are the concerns in this type of situation?
2: I, I worry about I, I worry about families who um, especially families who have a recent diagnosis of autism or cons- or have concerns about any you know um, that their child's behind or they're seeing a challenging behavior and they want to reach out to somebody who can help them and they hear applied behavior analysis is helpful cool. and then here's the problem if anybody can call themselves a behavior analyst you can find somebody who's going to promise you results which a behavior analyst will never do will never promise you that we'll make your child talk. We'll never promise you that we'll stop a behavior. Um, we, we try to work effectively, but we can never give that guarantee, right? Mm -hmm. So they might meet somebody who promises that they can do something and sounds very warm and caring, but then who might not have the skills to go about doing that. Um, and so you're wasting time, which is precious and resources on that. Um, and it's tricky because often those therapists that don't have that, um, that credential from the behavior analyst certification board that I, that I mentioned about, they're often um, less expensive, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a cheaper option. Behavior therapy is not um, inexpensive. And so a lot of families think, well, I can get more hours for my money if I hire mm. this person. Um, and those people might be able to tell you about visual schedules and rewards and things, um, but where the problem is is if that if your child is not making progress or there's a really challenging interfering behavior, they just simply do not have the skill to troubleshoot around it,
0: um, and so yeah. And then parents don't have the recourse either to like there's no recourse to you know if yeah. there's a complaint about that. That
2: a hundred percent. Right. That's a hundred percent true. So parents can. With um, behavior analysts uh, who are BCBA or BCBAD or BCABA or RBC, all those kind of things, if they're certified through the Behavior um, Analyst Certification Board, mm-hmm. they can make complaints to that board. The board's um, an international board, but based in the U.S., um, so they can absolutely make complaints and they can look up to see if somebody does have the credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I have come across people who, who have clinics who say they have the credential and, and they don't. Mm-hmm which is challenging, so you can always look us up on the on the board's website and you can make a complaint. But it's important that we have um, regulation within the province so that you can make a local complaint and so that the laws follow our provincial laws or our federal laws, right? Yeah. Because I'm not, I mean, technically, ethically, I'm bound by laws, but it's not the same as having a college of psychologists, for instance, right, where you know exactly um, how to make the complaint and that it's Ontario-specific, understanding of how our laws work. Um, and so behavior analysts are certainly, um, really fighting for and working towards that. And hopefully will be coming soon, but it is a big problem right now. So you really have to be savvy and ask about what the, what their qualifications are. Mm-hmm. Um, especially to, if they're overseeing or designing the program, sometimes mm-hmm. we have really great therapists that don't have those qualifications, but they're being clinically supervised by somebody else who is telling them exactly what to do and monitoring the program. Um, and, and you should be okay. transparent about that and absolutely yeah. should be transparent. And that's okay because, because a lot of the therapists that worked one-to-one with childrens the, the RBT, the registered behavior technician is, is fairly new. It's only been a couple of years. So not everybody has had that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly the person who's overseeing your child's programming, assessing and monitoring needs to needs to be uh, registered with the board.
0: Yeah. So given, you know, that the, the issues around kind of lack of regulation at this point, yeah. given with like a funding structure where kind of parents have to seek out their services mm-hmm. on their own, that creates a bit of buyer beware type of caveat. Yes. So what should parents be looking for in a behavior consultant?
2: So making sure that they're, um, certified with the board Mm -hmm. and actually with the new, like the Ontario autism program, um, they do specify that if it's somebody overseeing, they have to be, um, a BCBA or working towards it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a bit different. Um, but I would say, look at their academic background, Mm -hmm. make sure that once you know that they have the, the certification, then make sure that they have experience working with a child similar to yours right? Um, I've worked in pediatrics from 16 months to 18 years, but if I'm asked to consult on a 40 year old, right, I'm going to need somebody to oversee me and supervise me as I'm gaining that experience. So it doesn't mean that that behavior analyst can't help you, but it, but it means there needs to be another level of some supervision, um, to do that. They should be able to tell you exactly, um, exactly what their plan is for assessment and how they treat in clear terms that make sense to you and how they bill should be very transparent. Mm -hmm. You should know exactly how much it's going to cost per hour or, you know, what the general plan is. Um, And I do have a sheet that, um, that I can give that's kind of what to look for in a good behavior therapist and what sorts of questions to ask. Um, And I think one of the things that's, the most important, after making sure that they actually have the qualification, is making sure it's a good fit for you and your family. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if somebody's going to be coming into your home, you need to feel comfortable. Yeah. So that's going to be an uncomfortable situation no matter what, especially as you're adjusting to somebody coming in your home, um, or just knowing that you're leaving your child's care in somebody else's hands. You need to feel comfortable with that person um, and comfortable, like I said, challenging them and really asking them questions, even if they're really difficult questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, those are great points. And we can, um, link, um, the sheet with sure. the questions to our podcast episode. So with all the experience that you've had, uh, Justine and yeah. that you've been, um, kind of like giving us like tips from and so on, what at this point, can you describe one of the most rewarding cases that you've had?
2: Um, it's funny, I'm asked this question a lot, and it's so hard for me to pinpoint any one kid, because I've, I've been so privileged to work with so many different families who have taught me so much about resiliency, and just that there are so many ways to live a life, mm-hmm. um, which is really humbling, and it's really important as a behavior analyst to know everybody lives their life differently, and so my role is not to insert myself into how I live my life, and their behavior plans but how can I help them reach their goals for their life and what's culturally important to them um I think that kind of just speaking broadly um the clients that kind of make me feel the most positive about and feel the happiest about what I do for a living at the end of the day are the ones that really challenge me hard that really ask me Mm. hard questions yeah I've had some I've had one mom I'll never forget who like literally said to me who are you? What do you do? And why did the psychologist who diagnosed my daughter send me to you? Right. <laughs> right? And I mean, she was seeking me out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's, I think that that's a real opportunity and a privilege to kind of talk to those families about what I do and, and leave it up to them and in their hands to decide whether they want my support or not. And some families decide that they don't, and they want to, you know, pursue a different support. And that's perfectly acceptable, but it's really rewarding for those families who, who say, yeah, we do want your help. And then getting to see their children grow and learn skills is a real, real privilege.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's beautifully put. I also like, there's like a flavor in that too, of around like, not using heavy persuasion strategies like yeah. you're a professional you give them the input about what you can do for them and ultimately it's it's their decision
2: yeah because yeah. you know in behavior analysis when we're looking at especially interfering behaviors we have to change the environment so that also means as parents looking at how we respond and changing how we respond right and so mm-hmm. if a parent isn't ready to kind of get on that train with me then it's, it's not going to be really effective anyway, right? So there's, not even a, there's no point in persuading. Not that I would want to anyway, but we're just not going to get there. They're not going to reach their goals.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Justine, I feel like we've learned a lot from you today in this episode and that listeners are leaving with some concrete approaches that they can implement with their children. As with many topics we've discussed in this podcast series, behavior therapy can initially seem complex and mysterious. But with the appropriate guidance and support, patience and persistence, it can create a pathway to a child responding more positively across situations, building their self-esteem and resilience. So thanks so much for sharing all of this with us, Justine. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you've listened to this episode and have comments or ideas that you'd like to share with us regarding future episodes or what you heard today feel free to email us at asdengage at